just wanted to mention, <clears throat> uh, based on Clayton's prayer about the IBSA, uh, this past week they sent us several uh, very nice, glossy, they call them like guidebooks or yearbooks or something like that. They're on the little table near the restrooms in the lobby, and they're very nicely put together. I read through one a couple of weeks ago, and it tells a lot of detail about what the IBSA is, which we support generously through our through our generous giving every week, and then uh, what their mission is, what they're accomplishing throughout Illinois, both here in the Chicago area and downstate, and it looks very different uh, just by necessity in, in the, these two parts of the state. So all that to say, if you would like to take one of those, please take one. You're welcome to bring it back if you want to, but you're also welcome to just keep one. I think we got four of them, so uh, we can get more if we need them, but just wanted to let you know about that. Please take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. If you were trying to convince someone to uh, go on vacation to a particular place, you would probably show them pictures of that place, tell them what the benefits are of it, tell them how they would get there. If you were trying to convince someone to cheer for a particular sports team, you would probably uh, give them some uh, shirts and hats and banners and posters, maybe a decal for their car, you'd take them to a game, you would explain the history of, their, of that team's success or lack thereof, depending on which city you're in. And uh, you'd be doing a lot of different things to try to convince them that this is the team you should put your energy behind. What Luke is doing for us is far more important than teaching someone to go to a particular place on vacation or to cheer for a particular team. But what he's doing is trying to expose a man named Theophilus. We learned this from chapter 1 in Luke uh, many, many moons ago in Luke 1, uh, that Theophilus was asking important questions about who Jesus was. And if you're going to believe that he is who he says he is, what it means then to follow him, to look like one of his disciples or a follower of Jesus. And so <clears throat> this gospel account, that's what we call the book of Luke, was written to help someone wrestling with important questions, far more important than where to go on vacation or which team to cheer for, but with important questions about the Christian faith. And uh, this was written so that this man, Theophilus, and all those like us who would read it in years later would know that it is true, that this message is true, and that Jesus is worthy of our very life, not just of some tacit approval, not just of wearing a shirt that says, I love Jesus, but of actually giving him your life. That's what Luke is aiming to do in this whole book for Theophilus and what he's seeking to do for all of us as well. So I'll be reading today in Luke 18 verses 18 through 30. So if you're new to the Bible, uh, for one, if you need a Bible, there's some out on the table in the, in the lobby. And if you're not familiar with what the numbers are on a page, for one, I would encourage you just to lean over to someone near you and have them help you find where we are in Luke 18. But the small verses are the verses, the, uh, the small numbers are the verses, the, the larger numbers are the chapters. In this case, because we're in Luke 18, 18, just find anywhere on the page that there's an 18 and you'll be in the right spot. So let me uh, read from verse 18 through verse 30. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. 
But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Perhaps you heard about the experiment conducted at Stanford University in the late 1960s where uh, scientists took children, generally four-year-olds, maybe a few five-year-olds as well, and put them in a, in a small room uh, with, I don't remember the, the type of glass, but where the children couldn't see the people on the other side, but the people on the other side could see the children, and left them with a marshmallow on a plate and just told them, if you don't eat this marshmallow, we'll give you two marshmallows later. But if you eat this marshmallow now, we won't give you another one. And so then they left the room, and you have little four-year-olds, little five-year-olds. You saw me holding Andrew over here. You have him sitting there with a delicious treat, a child-sized delicacy right in front of him. And now you just give him, say, 30 seconds. How will children do resisting the urge to go after that little morsel that will give so much satisfaction if you just put it in your mouth and taste it melt away on your tongue? And the children would sit there and squirm a little bit and look at it and stare at it, and maybe some would turn it upside down and twist it around. And some of the children ate the marshmallows, and some of the children did not. And a variety of studies have come out of that experiment, and very similar experiments, some with warm chocolate chip cookies. Can even adults resist a plate of chocolate chip cookies before taking a test? Things along those lines. But the point of that little story is from that experiment, is that we have our own pull on our hearts as well. Typically, the objects that are right in front of us, that are calling for our attention, that we're turning over and looking at from every possible angle, are far more important than a marshmallow or a chocolate chip cookie. Typically, they're things like our careers, or our relationships, or our reputation. All of those are very important, and they're going to test the ability of our hearts to truly pursue Jesus or pursue those poles. What we love most is what makes it hardest for us to follow Jesus. And in our passage today, Jesus is, is uh, meeting a man, and a man is coming to Jesus with a particular kind of question, an important question that Jesus shows that can be answered in a variety of ways. How do I get eternal life is the same thing as how do I get saved, which is the same thing as how do I find forgiveness, which is the same thing as how do I uh, enter the kingdom. All of these are part of this passage. He doesn't specifically mention the forgiveness part, but we know that, that that's synonymous from other passages. And so as we, as we look at this passage today, what we learn is that following Jesus requires a willingness to lose all in this life for the promise of gaining everything in the next. 
To follow Jesus requires a willingness to lose all in this life for the promise of gaining everything in the next. We should probably, uh, we should, I should say, notice parallels, and I I was going to say you probably have noticed parallels between what I just read here in Luke 18 and many other passages from Luke. And again, we've been going through this book together for close to a year and a half now, essentially. And uh, so some of this may start to sound super familiar. Like, haven't we already heard this very question, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And the short answer is, yes, we have absolutely heard that very question. Back in chapter 10, in the story of the Good Samaritan, this man comes to Jesus and says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's the exact same question. And what did Jesus do in response to that question? He asked him a question. He said, what's the law say? Love God and love your neighbor. Exactly. And the man follows up with another question. What was that question? Who's my neighbor then? I I, I think I've done a pretty good job loving my neighbor. And Jesus says, okay, here's the neighbor. And he goes on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. Here in this passage, though, the the question is the same. What do I do to inherit eternal life? And instead of focusing on on asking another question, Jesus just simply says, well, you know what the Bible says. The Bible says, obey the law. And for those of us who are living 500 years after the Reformation, we might think like, okay, this is making me super uncomfortable right now because it sounds like Jesus is saying you can earn your own salvation. But what did God require of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? He required perfect obedience. And He still requires that today. And that's where the bad news comes in. The bad news of the Gospel. The bad news of the good news is that you can't perfectly obey the law. And so we'll get to what this, this man uh, answers in just a moment here. Some of the other parallels to other stories. Remember in Luke 6, which I believe I preached on this very weekend, Thanksgiving weekend last year. Uh, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Chapter 8, verse 14. As for what fell among the thorns, they, who, uh, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Chapter 12 told us about the foolishness of the one who laid up treasure for himself on this earth, but is not rich toward God. Chapter 16, you cannot serve God and money. And in that same passage, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, a man who died extremely wealthy, but then lost everything and was not rich toward God. And so essentially what I'm saying is Luke talks about riches, talks about rich people, talks about money more than any other book in the Bible, except for the Proverbs. So that should tell us this is a significant part of Luke's interest, which makes us think, and again, we don't want to completely mirror read what's going on here, but makes us think Theophilus is probably a pretty wealthy guy. And maybe Jesus was addressing wealth and riches and money to get this guy to see if you're going to follow Jesus, and I'm telling you who He is over and over again, He does amazing miracles. That's what he, essentially who he's told us he is so far. He's the Son of God, the Son of Man. He does amazing miracles. You should follow him. And he's honing in on what that's going to look like for Theophilus and for you and for me. And so perhaps this, this passage is going to make us a little bit uncomfortable and we're all kind of backing our toes up already because we don't want to give up the thing that we love most. We don't want to let that marshmallow on the plate in front of us pass us by. But this passage tells us that to follow Jesus requires a willingness to lose all in this life for the promise of gaining more, gaining everything in the next. 
So what does Jesus call us to do? The question on the screen is, will you do what is necessary? And again, that makes it sound like salvation is something that you do. And essentially, you have to make the decision, am I going to follow Jesus? Salvation is a gift of God, full stop. So that's a very important uh, qualification, if we even want to put it that way as a qualification. We do nothing to make God look the other way about our sin, but to receive that gift requires believing certain truths and responding in certain ways. And that's the emphasis of this passage here. So what does Jesus call us to, deter- to do? The first response is to adjust your understanding of who Jesus is. Adjust your understanding of who Jesus is. And look in, in verse 1 there, this ruler, we know nothing about uh, what kind of ruler he was, probably just a, a wealthy politician, and we learn from other passages that he is uh, the rich young ruler. The ruler asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what we need to re- uh, realize here is that this man is coming to Jesus as a non-Christian. In other words, as someone who's not currently following Jesus. He's kind of approaching him, uh, and we know that just from the way he asks the question, from the title he calls Jesus. He's not, asking, he's not calling him Lord. He's not calling him Master. He's looking at him as just as one of the good rabbis who's walking through the countryside teaching the Old Testament Uh, to God's people. So, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's coming to him as a non-follower of Jesus, seeing whether Jesus is telling the truth, whether Jesus is giving a reliable answer. But when you think about what you're supposed to do to inherit something, how many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand, but just think, how many of you have received some kind of inheritance? And what did you do to receive that inheritance? You were born into a family. Like, that's how you get that inheritance. It's not something you did. It's something you receive. And so this guy seems a little confused even about the, the wording that he uses to ask Jesus how he gets saved, essentially, is what he's asking. And Jesus responds to him, why do you call me good? And maybe as you read that, and I will say this passage is a little bit of a you know, head-scratcher at different times of study. Maybe as you read that, you think it sounds like Jesus is saying that Jesus himself is not good. But what he's trying to do is make this guy realize there is one person in the universe who is good, and it's God. So if you call me good, you need to realize what you're saying. You are saying that I am God. You need to adjust your understanding of who Jesus is, is what Jesus is telling him. Understand that if you're going to call me good, and you should, because he is God, but that's what you're saying if you call him good. Otherwise, don't call him good. So Jesus is getting him to, to understand both who Jesus is, but also who this other guy is. Because from the next uh, section here, Jesus' next part of his answer, this guy sounds like he's a pretty decent, upstanding fellow. The kind of guy you would enjoy having as your neighbor. Or the guy, kind of guy who you would enjoy looking out for your, your financial records Uh, at the bank or as your tax advisor, he sounds like a really nice, upstanding citizen because Jesus says, this is what you need to do to have eternal life. Keep the law. Keep the Ten Commandments. And what Jesus does is lays out these five uh, commandments that focus on the loving your neighbor part of the law rather than loving your God part of the law. And so he says things like honoring your father and mother and not killing people and not committing adultery. And guess what? You know, again, we have other passages from say, Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount and, and lots of other Jesus' teachings where we could say, there's no way this guy could say he perfectly kept the law. 
But in his day, if he wasn't aware of some of what Jesus had said, say, on the Sermon on the Mount, it was expected that you would say, yes, I've kept the whole law. Of course I haven't killed someone or committed adultery or dishonored my parents or lied or stolen and on and on. This was expected and normal to to think in these categories. And again, we, we understand that our hearts are broken and bent towards sinning. What we were just saying a little while ago is that we are prone to wander and prone to leave the God we love. So we have a perhaps more robust understanding of human nature than this guy did. But his, he wasn't lying when he said, I've kept all these from my youth. And in fact, you can almost detect a yawn in his answer when Jesus says, this is what you need to do. He's like, Duh, like everybody has done that. Kind of like asking like one of these cooks on a cable cooking channel to make a scrambled egg. Like, ask me to do something that's impressive and important. This is nonsense. Or ask somebody who, you know, for a living does handwriting, maybe calligraphy or, or you know, like these hand lettering signs that you see in the, the stores on LaGrange Road. Like asking someone like that to write their name 10 times, like, I know how to do this very nicely. And this guy's like, I know how to obey the law. So tell me, is that all I need to do to have eternal life? To have my sins forgiven? To be right with God? And so, uh, what Jesus calls this man to do is forsake the illusion of being good enough. Do you consider yourself to be a good person? Do you feel like you match up well with other citizens in our society? Most of us probably would say, yeah, like, I'm a pretty good guy, a pretty good lady. I know what I'm doing and mind my own business and drive the speed limit and whatever else. Is that the standard, though? The Bible would say that's not the standard. The question isn't how well you compare to other people. How do you compare to God? And if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is the most fundamental question you could answer right now is how you compare to God And you have to back up and say, oh yeah, I'm not as good. I'm not as holy as God. There is none good but God. And so forsake the illusion of being good enough. Adjust your understanding of who Jesus is, that he is truly good. He is truly God. Forsake the illusion of being good enough. And what Jesus gets at here in the next section here is let go of the part of your life that you think defines you. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this man's response that he's kept these laws his whole life, When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Which is a synonymous way of saying you will have eternal life. Let go of the part of your life that you think defines you. For this man to hear this would have been devastating. We're talking CEO of Walmart levels of wealth probably. Like a guy who to sell everything, is going to ruin his life from his perspective. And what Jesus is trying to get this guy to see is to follow Jesus doesn't just mean putting like a rubber stamp of, of yes, I love Jesus on a piece of paper. It doesn't just mean signing your name in your Bible. It doesn't just mean attending a, a church, even a Baptist church. It doesn't mean anything other than giving your whole life to follow him. A willingness to lose everything in this life for the promise of everything in the next. And so for some people, maybe it's not money. Like maybe you're like, man, this really wouldn't change my life at all. I'd hardly have to give up anything. 
But for others, you know, maybe, maybe what you would need to give up is your reputation of being that upstanding citizen, of being beautiful, of having the personality that everybody enjoys being around at a Christmas party, of having success or credentials, like I'm on this board and that association, and I'm a life member of this organization, your status, your influence, your authority. Like, I like being the person who can make decisions that affect lots of people. That's a lot of responsibility. Are you sure that's really what you want to go with? But if that's what your identity is, and you're honing in on that, this is who I am, what Jesus is telling you is that's what you need to be willing to give up. You need to give up the part of your identity that is most significant to you. It's essentially what this man is is calling Jesus to do. We may need to be willing to leave our job. We may need to be willing to leave behind the glory that our education gets us or even the idea of continuing to go to school. We may need to be willing to leave behind our own family or our reputation or our security. And many people in our society today are not willing to do that even for their own child in the womb or out of the womb. Yeah, right, I'm going to leave my job for the well-being of my child. And again, that's a whole other sermon, I'm sure. But what I'm saying is, are we willing to leave behind what we consider to be the most important part of our identity in order to follow Christ well? The rub of this passage, though, is that it sounds like Jesus is teaching that salvation can be gained by works. And so if you're coming to this passage and you're, you're new to it, what I would say is, we're interpreting this passage <clears throat> excuse me, in light of lots of other passages. Okay, So you read the less clear passages in light of the more clear passages. If you want to read just this passage alone, you're going to say, okay, well, maybe I can earn God's favor. And simply put, that is the furthest thing from the truth. This was very difficult for this man to hear this. Because when, when Jesus said, be willing to sell everything you have and give it to the poor, so just to be clear really fast, that's not something that all of us have to do, or then all of us are going to become poor as well, and it's just going to keep this cycle going. But, uh, what, but Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, sell everything you have and come and follow me. And so essentially that's the fourth response that Jesus requires here. And because we've been talking about this for you know, essentially a year and a half, I'm just going to simply say, follow Jesus is that you... Uh, believe what he says about himself and about all of life, and you obey him. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus or to be a disciple of Jesus is another way we could put that. And so Jesus calls us then to, to follow him. Jesus also calls us to trust the power of God to save even the hardest cases. This man became very sad because he was extremely rich. And Jesus says it's immensely difficult. And then he basically goes on to say it's impossible for someone who is rich to be saved. This was really bad news. Like if you're going to put an emoji on this, it would be the one where the head is exploding, right? Like your brain is shattered because you hear this message right here. Why? Because everyone living when Jesus said this would have thought those who are rich are the ones who have the fast track to heaven. And the book of Luke has been taking that and twisting it upside down the whole time, right? That's one of the amazing reversals is that the first are the last and the last are the first. 
That's been a message throughout Luke, one of the themes of Luke throughout this book. And so Jesus' audience there, with their minds blown, are saying, then who can be saved? If this guy can't be saved when he has everything that you would want, where does that leave the rest of us? And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And that should thrill your heart that you can go home today knowing that you have been saved by the almighty power of God, not because of something that you have deserved or done. Trust the power of God to save even the hardest cases. And what I want to encourage you to do is to keep praying for the hardest cases. Keep praying for the person that you think there's no way this person's ever going to turn in faith to Christ. They are too far gone. You know, they're basically on their deathbed, dead set in believing something completely contrary to the Bible. And I would say keep praying for the power of God to overwhelm this situation, this person's uh, unbelief. Because what is impossible with man is possible with God. And this truth resounds throughout the book of Luke as well. All the way back to chapter 1 when an angel came to Mary and said, you're going to give birth to a baby and he's going to save the world. And she says, how is this possible? And the angel basically says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. So trust the power of God to save even the hardest cases. Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Basically, just think, what is the largest animal in this context at this day when Jesus is speaking? It would be a camel. Humongous animal. And then take the smallest hole you can find and now try and get that camel through there. Obviously, Jesus is just being hyperbolic. He's just kind of speaking in large terms here to say, this is impossible, humanly speaking. But just go home with this assurance today that what's impossible for man is possible for God. Why is it so difficult in response to Jesus' comment here that it is difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Why would you think it is so difficult for someone who is very wealthy to be saved? I made a list of seven, I believe, answers here. If I get to that page, why is it so difficult for a rich person to follow Jesus? First of all, because money solves problems and numbs pain. Have you noticed that? Like somebody who has gazillions of dollars, their problems are solved. Like you don't have to worry about dental work because it's not expensive to them. You don't have to worry about getting your kids in the best schools because you just pay the right amount of money and you get your kids in that school. You don't have to worry about ever being denied access. Money solves problems and numbs pain. Money gives the illusion of security. Jeremy Meeks hit on this for us last week, that you can think that there's tremendous security in having a certain number of zeros after the other numbers in your bank account. Money gives the illusion of security. Money distracts from the next life. Like it's not even on our radar that there's a life after this one because in this life I have everything that I could have ever wanted. Money wins friends and buys influence and that's true even in churches. That's a dangerous part of church ministry of letting the people who are financially secure and financially successful be the ones who are automatically voted in as deacons and some churches have trustees and whatever else. Put them in the authority because they prove that they know how to handle money. That is not anywhere 
in the qualifications in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. It's just a completely foreign question to the biblical categories of qualifications. Can you have a very wealthy elder or deacon serving your church? Absolutely. And they're wonderful gifts to the church. Just like the person who pinches two pennies together is a wonderful resource as an elder or a deacon in a church. Money wins friends and buys influence, so it's hard for people to give up those friends and those influences for the sake of the gospel. Money lies about our self-importance. Why would I need that crutch? I have everything that I already need. I'm fine without it. Money means you're never denied entrance, so I can get into anything I want to in this life. I can probably figure it out in the next life as well. And then money grants control. These are the seven reasons I came up with. You could add to them. You could probably scratch some of those out, combine some of those. But the bottom line is money makes it really hard to follow Jesus. And this is true throughout the Bible that that, uh, this is the case. But as you think about these impossible things that, that God makes possible, what are some of the other impossibilities in your life? Would you consider it impossible for you to forgive someone in particular. And when I say that, maybe they come to mind immediately. I could never forgive that person. That is impossible. What people say is impossible, God makes possible. Maybe there's some other impossibilities in your life that God makes possible through the gospel. Excuse me. Finally, here in verses 28 and, and 29 and 30, Peter responds and says, look, we've we've done this. We have followed you. The the, the we is emphasized there. It's like it's underlined in in italics. We have followed you. We have left our homes. Maybe that means that they left their wives behind. Maybe they left the possibility of even getting married in some of these cases for these disciples. And Jesus says, I'm just going to tell you, if you follow me, you will not be unrewarded for it, which is using a double negative to say there is great reward for leaving all behind. And so maybe to go back a couple of chapters in Luke, you could say, you know what? We are unworthy servants who have simply done our job. We simply went about living the Christian life in the power of God, in the public sphere, and in the private sphere. You know, what what you do when you're in front of people is one thing, but what you do behind closed doors by yourself is another thing. And that's where you really learn who you are. That's where you really learn who someone else is when you find out what they do behind closed doors. And so... What Jesus is saying is, if you truly have followed me, you truly will be rewarded in the next life. And that's why I'm saying that following Jesus requires a willingness to lose everything in this life for the promise of gaining everything in the next. And so what Jesus is doing here in verses 28 through 30 is telling the disciples to lean into the family of God. You may truly lose your parents, your siblings, your spouse, your children, your best friends, your job, your wealth, your everything. You truly may. It would not be difficult to find Christians, perhaps even in our midst today, but certainly in our surrounding region here, who have lost their families, who truly have no one outside of the church that they can go to because they have left the faith they they were raised in, for instance. So lean into the family of God. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, you've left 
your wife, your brothers, your parents, your children. You will receive many more in this, many more times that in this time, in this life, in other words. What's he talking about there? The church family, the people that you link arms with and say, we are together on a mission to declare the glory of God. And you might look at that and say, ugh, like, this is my family? Like, this isn't exactly what I would have signed up for. They're kind of like the, the cousin who shows up at Thanksgiving dinner that you haven't seen blessedly since the last Thanksgiving, and you're kind of relieved you don't have to see them again. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 is we need every part of the body. You need your big toe for your walking skills to be as mature as they need to be. I don't know which person in this room is the big toe in this church body, but I'm saying we need you whoever you are. We need everyone who is part of the family of God that He has given us. And so, lean into that church family. Perhaps as you think back on the miracle of God doing the impossible in your life, one way that you can reflect on that even more on this Thanksgiving weekend of giving thanks truly to the one who has given us what is impossible, spiritual life, where once there was only spiritual death, what you can do is write out your own conversion story. That could be a couple of bullet points on a three-by-five card. It could also be a couple-page-long document, a couple-pages-long document. How would it, in the world, would it get to be that length? Well, let me, let's say, where does your conversion story begin? And according to Ephesians 1, you have to go back before the foundation of the world. So there you can start, and then you can get a little more specific after that. So what you would ask then is, how did I hear the gospel? And you would think through what it took for the Lord to bring people into your life who taught you the gospel. So in my case, that would mean my parents. Thank God for my parents. Thank God for their faithful exposure to the gospel in my home. But how did they hear the gospel? Let's just go down my mom's side for a second. Maybe I've done this with you before. I'm just trying to re-illustrate this for you if I have done this. Down my mom's side, we say, well, her, she heard it from her parents. Well, where did her parents hear it? As far as I know, they heard it from their parents. What that means is I have a wonderful spiritual heritage. And if you're in that category as well, praise God and trace it back as far as you can. See if somebody came across the Atlantic Ocean who brought the gospel with them so that you could hear it in 2020 or 2022 or whatever year you heard the gospel. Down my dad's side, he heard the gospel through a friend while they were dangling their feet in a pool in Southern California. Praise God for whatever that guy's name was. I have no idea. Where did he hear the gospel? And what I'm saying is you are, I don't even know exactly how to put this, you are the summary of lots of other conversion stories. And so praise God when you uh, think through the details of how God taught you the gospel, that you are actually just looking at a web gospel advance. And that should thrill your heart and, and fill you with joy. So, uh, write your own conversion story as far back as you possibly can go. Again, lean into your own church family as we, as we think through that application. Let these other Christians help you walk across the river safely, to use like a John Bunyan Pilgrim's Progress metaphor. The water gets deep at times. What do you do when the water's a little too far, when the ground is a little too far down below? You hold on to other people who do have their feet on firm ground and they carry you through and they get you safely to the other side. And that's why you need church members, church family members who will walk with you to the other side. We need this family. And maybe you need to grow more spiritually so that you can be able to hold more firmly to other Christians. 
as they walk to the other side as well. What Jesus is doing with this man is exposing him to his idol, exposing him to what he loves more than anything else. And I'm going to briefly close with this in just a moment. Essentially, what Jesus says is, love your neighbor. And the guy puts one big check mark. Check. Did that. Okay. Now let's see how you're doing with that other side of the Ten Commandments, loving God more than anything else. So in order to see whether you're there, go ahead and sell everything. And the guy's like, yeah, right. You're speaking crazy talk. There's no way I'm going to do that. Okay, so now we've just exposed. There is something you love more than God himself. And what you want to do is ask yourself that same question. And one way you can do that is by working through a list of questions that this author, David Paulison, who's with the Lord now, uh, lays out. He calls them x-ray questions. I'm just going to read a a brief sampling of them. And if you want uh, more, I can photocopy this whole list or send it probably to you in a Word document I think I have. But essentially what he's doing is asking 35 different questions, and some of the questions are themselves multiple questions. So let's say even 50 questions to help you figure out what it is that you truly love. In other words, maybe you're most concerned about your spending habits, or as Clayton prayed in the pastoral prayer, your phone habits, or maybe your sexual habits, or any number of other sin habits. Maybe you know exactly what it is that you want to hone in on. You need to get below the surface there. You can't just look at the obvious details. You need to figure out what threads are below the surface that are making you love that more than the Lord. And so, essentially, some questions you could ask yourself. What do you talk about? What's important to you? How do you spend your time? What are your priorities? What are your characteristic fantasies, either pleasurable or fearful? What are your daydreams? What do your night dreams revolve around? Uh, In what do you place your trust or set your hopes? What do you turn to or seek? Where do you take refuge? How do you live for yourself? How do you live as a slave of the devil? How do you implicitly say, if only to get what you want, avoid what you don't want, keep what you have? The if onlys are, are, are slangs. Like, if only I didn't have this problem, then my life would be happy. Well, this is starting to expose a little bit more of what your functional idol is. And what you want to do is get below the surface and figure out what is it that I love that's keeping me from loving God above all else? It was fairly obvious to this man, perhaps by the, or to, to Jesus, I should say, that for this man it was wealth, perhaps based on the way he walked, perhaps based on the, the way he was dressed. Jesus knew this man was a very wealthy man. And so then he knew that in order for this man to follow Jesus, he needed to be willing to give up his idol. In order for you to follow Jesus, you too need to give up what it is that you love more than Christ Perhaps you need to give up that marshmallow that's sitting right on the plate in front of you so that in the next life you will have even greater reward. You will gain the promise. Uh, You you will receive the promise of everything that is given to you in the next life. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we want to love you. We know the pull of our hearts. We know the habits that make living life complicated. We know the the longings that are often unexpressed, often invisible to other people, but we are very well acquainted with them in our own hearts. We pray that you'd make us people who are willing to give up even those tender affections in our hearts for the sake of knowing Christ and being like him and following him all the way across the river. In Christ's name, amen.